hiring apprentices right now, and we probably get, I bet we get 50 applicants for every one we hire. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Today's podcast is part one of a two-part interview with Bill Cox, owner of Cox Manufacturing a high-tech machining company with over 185 employees in San Antonio, Texas. Unlike a lot of machining companies right now, who are struggling to find enough skilled people to fulfill demand, Cox has a continuous supply of new talent, which the company develops using a thorough three-year apprenticeship program. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am honored to be with Bill Cox, steward and CEO and owner of Cox Manufacturing in San Antonio, Texas. Welcome to the show, Bill. Um, Bill is a longtime customer and I consider friend. Actually was on the show, one of the first people on the show. And today we're talking again about hiring and retaining employees. And Bill was one of the first people that came to mind when I thought of that, because when I had visited him, he had talked about uh, a lot of those concepts. Um, so, Bill, just to get started, I want to give people a very brief summary of Cox, what you guys make, how long you've been around, etc. You know, the two minute version. Okay, sure. We're a 65-year-old family business, started by my dad, continued by my mom. and I got involved at a very young age in, in a leadership role. When I got involved, we had 18 employees. We've got over 185 now. We specialize in high-volume production machining. Swiss has always been a, a cornerstone uh, of, of what we do. Over half our machines are Swiss built machines, both multi-spindle and single spindle. We also have Italian machines like the, the uh, Eurotex and, uh, and Gildemeisters. And, but uh, high volume production machining, running three shifts, producing over 1.5 million parts every week. Wow. And for what sectors? Very intentionally uh, a very diverse uh, customer base, uh, automotive and trucking, firearms, defense, aerospace, medical device, electronics. Okay. And what's been the hottest of late? Well, uh, certainly firearms has been pretty hot. Yeah. You know, that seems like a pattern for a lot of our uh, customers, readers, listeners. And what's been the weakest? Aerospace? Aerospace, right. Uh, okay. Well, awesome. 
Now I want the three minute bio. Just give us a little background on yourself and the family business. Sure. Well, um, when my mom was pregnant with me, my dad had the idea of buying a Swiss machine and starting a business. As it turned out, uh, years later, I discovered a letter that he had written uh, to someone saying he expected to be open for business in March on the very day that I ended up being born. Did that come true? I don't know if he was really open for business on that day. That part I don't know. But uh, I, I literally grew up with the business. I was the only son, had two sisters that weren't really interested in continuing their slave labor in the business and opted out <laughs> at an early age. Um, but I always enjoyed it. Unfortunately, my dad started having heart attacks at a young age, and my mom had kind of prepared herself for the day that the business would be left in her hands. He had a fatal heart attack when I was 12, and my mom continued the business. Uh, she actually asked me if it was something that she should hang on to, or should she consider selling the business? Was I interested in it? And there was never a doubt in my mind that uh, I wanted to be involved in it, so my mom uh, mentored me, tutored me from a young age, the office business side, uh, but the, the manufacturing side I delved into, that was not her expertise. Uh, when my dad died, we had about 12 employees. My mom grew up to about 18 by the time I was 20. Um, I went to A&M for a couple of years um, as an engineering major, but even when I went into out of high school, I said, I don't have time to go four years. I'm just going to go for a couple of years and join mm -hmm. the business. So um, worked together with my mom many, many years. Um, today, uh, um, you know, she passed away gee, about 15 years ago. Today, I've got one son involved in the business, my 23-year-old, the oldest, and a couple other sons that are still, you know, in school, but they're alluding to being interested as well. So we'll see what God's got planned for them. But I'm still having fun, still growing the business, still optimistic about the future of U.S. manufacturing. How old are you? I'm 65. Okay. About to start collecting that check. <laughs> Reluctantly or not. Um, awesome. Okay, that's a great starting point. So let's go into hiring that 99% of people right now are saying, I can't find anybody. I buy machines if I had people to run them. Um, so what's the case with you in San Antonio and in, in your diverse shop of 185 people? Well, for perspective, when I first entered the industry in the 1970s, people were complaining about the shortage of skilled workers as well. And it's been a reoccurring theme. In, in our region, there's not other shops you can hire from, trade off with. They're, they're just pretty, pretty sparse. It's been about a little over 15 years ago. We got very intentional about uh, workforce development. And that has been the single best thing that we've done to improve our situation. When did you start really growing it? I mean, because it was 18 employees at one point. When I first joined the business, we had a big surge. Uh, and that's a whole nother story besides workforce development. But in truth, what I've learned over the years, you kind of have to reinvent your management system every time you double your business. And uh, so uh, when I came into the business, there was a lot of low hanging fruit and I got on the shop floor and 
re-engineered jobs and put in place some marketing that we had never had. And, and honestly, even put together some training programs that uh, we had zero formal training. And when I look back, it's almost amazing that I had the instincts to do a lot of these things. But at the time, we were getting people stolen from us by the Air Force Base, the Civil Service Air Force Base. They had a benefit and, and wage package that was hard to compete with. So retaining some of our skilled people was key. And the way we started addressing that early on established uh, different pay scales and and communicated what skill levels would uh, equate to what uh, pay levels. And by creating those structures, it helped give people something to strive for so they knew what they had to do to, to move up the pay scale. But we reinvented ourselves several times. I kind of got stuck at about 30 to 40 employees for a number of years and then stuck again at, at about 60 employees and then had to finally reinvent the system to kind of make some breakthrough growth. What I've seen is you have to have the management team and develop that, the management system and the management team every time you increase your business. Okay, awesome. So, okay, back to the hiring right now. So everybody's complaining about it. What are you feeling? Well, we've, over the years, we have been intentional about creating a good image in our community, having a good reputation. Uh, we're on a prominent location, a uh, prominent highway, so we've got good signage. But the key thing is we've got a very low turnover as a result of having a healthy environment, healthy work environment. And we believe that we've created an environment where we're an employer of choice. And you're one of the only machining companies around. Well, there's a lot of machining companies and there's you know, no one else close to our size and sophistication. There's a few like CNC Swiss machines here and there, you know, a pocket, two or three okay. here, there maybe a half a dozen there. But when people do come from another shop into ours, they look forward to working with more advanced technology, everything from our metrology to the, you know, 12 axis CNC Swiss machines. You know, it just is a different environment. Sure. So you're not having as much trouble as other people, it sounds like. Yeah, I would say we don't have as much trouble for okay. sure. I have a lot of peers locally that complain about the hiring. I mean, here's a great example. A friend of mine complained that he couldn't find anybody. Someone came to me with a different skill set and a lot of Haas mill experience. So that's not what we do, right? So I referred him to my friend and the friend had filled the position. And so we didn't even save the guy's application. Yeah. And then two weeks later, he called me up and in a panic that he had someone resign on him. And he didn't have the application anymore. Of course, we keep applications. We keep our records. So I was able to help him out. But that's probably characteristic of or symptomatic of several problems. Number one, he's, he's, he's lost an, a skilled person, which for us is very unusual. Our turnover rate's very low. When we do lose someone, it's usually somebody that we're kind of happy left. How come you didn't hire him and just say, hey, I'll retrain you? We could have, and actually we flirted with that. And frankly, the careful decisions we make when we consider someone, it seemed like the guy was very focused on his wage level. And 
he frankly would be worth more to somebody programming and setting up Haas machines than he would as a trainee to teach, to learn how to set up a Swiss uh, 12 axis machine. So, so it wasn't that he couldn't have been good, but it just, the whole equation didn't work out with that. Right. One thing you were telling me about is your apprenticeship programs. It seems like you guys have something you've really developed already in place at the company. Yes. Over 12 years ago, we put together a program that we registered with the Department of Labor. It really wasn't that hard to do, but it it takes a huge commitment. It takes a lot of time and it takes commitment. Uh, So there's two components related and they have their own acronyms for it. There's basically curriculum. They call it, I think, related training, TRI. Anyway, there's a curriculum that we use and we use both some of our in-house training curriculum that's unique to Cox Manufacturing. And then, then the bulk of it, though, is an online curriculum, uh, Tooling U, which is an SME. Oh, okay. And then there's uh, the old, used to call it on-the-job training, and now the new buzzword is on the OJL, because they don't want to say training. They want to say OJL, on-the-job learning. And the on-the-job learning is demonstrated skill sets, basically, demonstrated proficiencies. So it's there's a three-year program. Each year, we map out the requirements for the academic side and the requirements for the OJL side. And uh, we have built some software to track where the team leaders can mark off when they've completed different skill sets and to graduate from one year to yet to the next. And then the uh, training coordinator coaches the supervisors, lead people. And they also keep up to date the records from tooling you what classes the person has taken. Uh, we were audited by a major customer in the defense contract sector. Uh, I guess it's been about three years now. And the auditor said he had been auditing for years and he had never seen another company with as robust uh, training tracking as we had. And uh, in fact, he said he inevitably always has some kind of finding in their training area, but this would be the first audit he had ever done with you no know, quote findings of uh, ball drops for uh, training. Wow. We're pretty proud of, of where we're at, but we put a lot into it. Just, just the effort of if you think about it, just the effort of looking at all the tooling you courses, there's a lot of them. There's a huge amount of choices and picking out which ones are, are going to be required courses for year one and then which are going to be available for electives, which are the required courses for year two and then year three. So it's how many years is the apprentice program theoretically? It's a three-year program, and every time an employee graduates out of year one year to the next, there's a pay bump and a one-week bonus vacation carrot. So they get a bonus one-week vacation that they can schedule. Wow. And what is the starting wage for an apprentice? Uh, We just recently raised it to $15 an hour for an apprentice. For the CNC apprentices, the the cam multi-spindle guys, we pay them an extra buck an hour because they're not as sexy. And honestly, we have people that... um, Does it work? Does it work to get them to do it? It shows them some love, I think. And there's people that we've had that have been good people that just couldn't get a hang of the cam machines. The multis, you know, they make parts fast. And then we've moved them over to the single spindle Swiss 
and they've done okay. So you've had, have you had people then that went, hey, I want to get the more money. I'm going to start with that. And then it just didn't work out and they had to go to the other one. We hate to leave that door open, but yeah, that's happened like that. We had one guy that came to us that had worked for a number of years at a smaller, less sophisticated shop that ran like Brown and Sharps and, and things like that. And we, we figured he had the mechanical aptitude to be successful, but he wanted to go to the CNC's and he had even taken a night course on the CNC's. Mm -hmm. But we were able to convince him to go to the multis and uh, he still wants to go to the scene season is okay with the dollar cut. But I, what do you do? You know, well, you do want him to be happy. We do. Yeah. We've kind of moved him back and forth. When we got low in the department he had trained on, he went and helped the multis out. Well, that brings me to a question. I mean, a lot of research has been done that shows if you cross train, you know, if you're a good soccer player and you go to a school that doesn't have a soccer team, maybe you would learn lacrosse or something and be a great lacrosse player because of the various background you have in something else. So wouldn't you think it might actually be good to bring people across from one to the other, just so like you'd use certain skills you developed from one to the other? To a certain extent, yes, but it's also to a certain extent like asking someone to play the violin and then to also play the saxophone. Yeah, <laughs> there's some of that in there too. Okay, well, I, you know what I'm saying. It just seems like one way might give you a certain perspective about the other thing. But I get it that if you find people that want to work with the dirty multi spindles, uh, you should keep them there. <laughs> but well, but it is it's not as sexy because you don't have the control panel to you know move a tool one and a half thousandths. You have to go in, stop the machine, and make the adjustment. I mean, things happen fast. I would say that anybody that's proficient on a multi, we can teach them a CNC. As I was saying, yeah, that's what I was getting at. Um, Not the other way around, though, unfortunately. Well, have you ever thought of just forcing everybody to learn the mechanical stuff? That would uh, be inefficient. <laughs> training. There'd be a lot of people that wouldn't get through it. And a lot of the kids, you'd be surprised. I mean, just to turn the, the bolt the right direction, you know, left, <laughs> righty tighty. Left. Exactly. That's what I say. Righty tighty, lefty loosey. In film class, that's what they taught me. I mean, it's still, uh, the kids, it, it's just so much harder for them to do the hands-on stuff for a high percentage. Some take to it fine. You just got to find the right guys. Well, it's interesting that you use the word sexy, you know, because in our world of selling multi spindles or selling Swiss machines or we, yeah, we would say right now the Swiss machines are the sexy machines, but are you familiar with the expression sexy ugly? <laughs> I, I don't know if I've heard that before. But... Oh, it's a thing. It's sort of a pop culture thing, like where a woman might see a guy and he's not necessarily like the Matthew McConaughey perfect chiseled face or whatever he's kind of like the rock star doesn't look perfect but he's sexy ugly so that's one you know metaphor we use for these dirty ugly machines which sometimes are just as valuable very interesting so you have the apprentices and i think what you say about paying them 15 or 16 dollars an hour i mean san antonio my understanding is the, the cost of living, what would you say? It's just sort of a medium or is it a low cost, a lower cost of living? It's probably slightly lower than average, slightly lower than average. 
See, to me, it seems like after talking to many people, it seems like your starting wage is relatively generous, particularly as a starting wage. Do you think that a problem in our industry is that people are too stingy at the bottom and that is makes it difficult to get people to get in there? Or is, is money not the issue? I think it's a combination of our industry not putting enough resources and developing people from the very beginning. And it's an investment and people are always, well, what if a guy doesn't stay? So, you know, they, they don't invest in them, but the problem is that they don't develop them as quick as they could. And they may not even get them to come to the first day. Yeah. We spend so much time interviewing them and touring them. By the time we selected somebody, they're pretty well vetted. We put a lot of energy on the selection process. Wow. You have a ton of applicants right now? We do, yeah. So it's competitive to get a job there then? It, it very much is, absolutely. Well, we had, um, and this isn't the apprentice job, but we were looking for an accounts payable clerk. We had someone leave that was had only been with us a year and just wasn't a good fit. And we put an ad in Indeed. Uh, this was just a couple of weeks ago. And within two weeks, we had a couple hundred applicants. And we wow. hired a solid applicant within a week. You know, it wasn't a super high-paying job or anything. But it was uh, a lot of competition. But we, we're still we're hiring apprentices right now. And I bet we get 50 applicants for every one we hire. Wow, that is tough. Um, and now that's a lot of online applications. So we have people that will stop in, but we take a lot of online applicants and we've had a lot of them. Does it count more if they stop by? No, no. It just accelerates the process as we want them to visit on average uh, three times if they're applying for an apprenticeship. So, okay. So tell me how that works, the application process then. So we'll, we'll get the application in if it's electronic um, then we will follow up with uh, Acumax personality profile, uh, which is well known in our industry. You know that we know there's certain profiles that will thrive in our environment, and certain ones that won't. We want to make sure there's a good good match there. I mean, if their work history and their stability looks like a, a long-term match, then we'll bring them in. For an interview, we get them to do a basic math test, which a lot of people will bomb out on that. Um, we're only looking for, I think the threshold is a 90 on the test, but it's only a dozen questions and it's uh, two de place decimal math with three word problems. Do you get a calculator or no? No, no. It's pretty simple. and But it, our rationale is that if people couldn't make change with uh, two place decimals and do a basic math. Are you talking about multiplying, multiplying decimals or just adding decimals? Just adding, subtracting. There is. Oh yeah. You shouldn't need a calculator for that. No, you shouldn't. On the shop floor, when you're looking at prints and adding 3000 or, you know, or making an offset, if you can't look at, this is what you read, and this is what I need to type in your offset, it's just, you're not going to be very efficient. You don't have a head for it, but we have a certain number of people fall out for that. They'll wash out there. And we just focus on those that already come in with that native ability. That's just one of the other checkpoints. Once somebody's hired, you know, how long until they're really, I mean, I know it's a three-year program, but where they're really making a difference in the company, how long does that take? And there's a wide range on that, on how quick they contribute. We do 
probably the ones that move up the quickest. We've had uh, people get to where they're even putting setups together in 90 days. 90 days. Yeah. And that's a basic setup on a five axis Swiss machine that's, you know, a proven uh, program, pretty straightforward changeover. But, you know, the person has learned how to read blueprints. They've learned metrology. They've learned how to change tools. They've learned how to, you know, obviously make offsets, all the tooling, the collets, the guide bushing. And those people are watching other machines while they're, they're taking, doing a changeover. Wow. What, is, how, what about to get on a multi-spindle? Have, has anybody gotten on there in three months? No. <laughs> I mean, this is important for me to know. I, I don't know. I, I think with multi-spindles and even Swiss to some extent, it's, it's just one of those things that a lot of people just don't understand. Dealers come to us and they're like, you guys are the Swiss experts. And I'm like, I mean, it's just, I think it's just different. A lot of people are just intimidated by something different that they don't know. I mean, I look at a machining center and I go, I don't know exactly how that works. So to me, that seems exotic or whatever. So I'm just curious. So it is, it is harder. They are harder to get going on. Yeah, it seems like there's just a lot to do just to maintain those machines. The, the set. For instance, what kind of machine, like a Gildemeister GM20 or a... Yeah, or, yeah, just um, all the different tooling to keep track of, the shape tools, the how to set that properly. Cams and... Yeah, there's just so much to learn. It's There's a lot more to learn there than to download a program and uh, uh, manage it five axes. So it's not just that it's dirty, it's that it's complicated. There's a lot of moving parts, literally. On the next episode of Swarfcast... The recruiting and opening your doors... You need to be doing it not just when you need to hire people. You need to be doing it for the thinking of the kid that's a junior in high school. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, Follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Hold up. 